Hey, Alan. Yes? Are you talking to me? <laughs> Alright, okay. I made, <laughs> I made a little note to myself. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I said, if Sol makes the worst talking to me reference ever, I'm never talking to him again. <laughs> Get it out of the way up front. It's done. We can move past it. All right, good. Okay, we've okay. done it. So, uh, done it. hello, welcome to <laughs> Diminishing Returns. This week is Taxi Driver. Uh, we've been joking about the the complete lack of Martin Scorsese on this podcast, which has run for over 200 episodes at this point. The fact that we (laughs) have yet to really get into Martin Scorsese, we did touch on The Irishman for our recent Oscars episode, but other than that, I don't think we've ever covered a a Martin Scorsese movie. Is that correct, Alan? That's Uh, correct. Um, And if, if you'd like to start this discussion with a little chat about Scorsese, that'd be fine by me. Okay, so uh, that voice there, just chiming in with the accuracy of my statement there, that was Alan. Hello. Uh, I'm Sol, thanks for joining us this week on Diminishing Returns. Okay, yeah, I was thinking whilst watching this film, I was thinking about Martin Scorsese, and uh, you know, I was, uh, of all the, at first I was thinking, you know, it's it's funny how Scorsese never he never quite went Hollywood, did he? I mean, he never quite went mainstream mm. in the way that, say, Spielberg did, and yet has maintained this presence as, you know, a household name director. Well, it, it, you know what I found bizarre is that he's always been kind of mid-level 1970s Hollywood, I guess. Because, you know, my my take on this film when I watched it back in the day was that, oh, it was some little project from Martin Scorsese and blah, 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 blah. Uh, reading about it last night after I rewatched it, no, it, it was just a, a script that had been developed. There were some producers coming along and Martin Scorsese was a hired gun they brought in. Um, after Brian De Palma, I think it was Brian De Palma decided he didn't want to do it. Well, he hadn't he hadn't done a lot by that point, and it had all been this kind of low budget, scrabbling on the streets of New York kind of filmmaking. He'd just done Alice Doesn't Live Here anymore, which had kind of raised his yeah. profile. I watched that with you, I believe. Is that uh, back in London? Oh God, I, I, can't I think we both watched that film for the first time together. That's possible. Yeah, I can't remember. Also, you know, De Niro in between signing the contract to do this film and actually doing the film, won an Oscar for Godfather Part 2, which sort of changed the nature of it. So, you know, three months after, they wouldn't have been able to get him because he would have been too expensive, you know. He he agreed to do it. Uh, He agreed to, you know, honour the contract. Obviously, he had history with Scorsese, so um, they were... He was willing to do it. Um, So, yeah, it was kind of one of those moments of, like, things coming together and it took off uh so it is it is as small a film as it looks i guess is the point can you do a, a robert de niro impression you strike me as someone who might have that in you tucked away <laughs> it's very it's very hard to to do a good robert de niro without the visual aid of being able to squint your eyes yeah i'm doing the face right now and you can't you can't yeah, yeah. <laughs> but i say it's the voice i can't i can't figure out the voice i can do the eyes fine but it's you know the downturned mouth yeah <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> no, I don't want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably a wise choice. So, uh, Scorsese, let's just uh, focus on Scorsese for, for a minute. He... Marty. Marty. People in, people in Hollywood call him Marty. It's always very jarring when you hit when they introduce him at the Directors Guild and places like that, you know. A leg- a cinematic legend, Marty. Marty Scorsese. <laughs> him and, uh, who's the other one? Bob Zemeckis. So, uh, just a quick look at uh, Scorsese here. And so he did uh, Taxi Drive. He followed that with New York, New York, which wasn't particularly successful. But then after, uh, well, he did The Last Waltz documentary, which is sort of a different direction. But then... He did Raging Bull, which was obviously another big success, but is also a small kind of drama, really. It's doing The Colour of Money feels like more of a Hollywood job, but then follow that with Last Temptation of Christ, and then Goodfellas uh, in 1990. Well, it, it, I, I don't really... I, I Martin Scorsese is someone I really need to dig into and, and just watch everything he's ever made, because... I feel like quite a Scorsese novice, really. I've seen a lot of his films, but there's a lot of gaps there. There's a lot of his stuff that I haven't seen. Yeah. And so I don't really have much of a sense of his career overall, what you're kind of working through here. Yeah, I guess, I guess, yeah, that's fair. But that's what I mean. I think there's these sort of, he'll like every 10 years, he'll just whack out a massive film that's just like redefines... Uh, what we know about about him and about cinema, <laughs> maybe that's a bit over the top. But you know, uh, Gangs of New York was two thousand two. The Departed was a big success, although I don't think that was particularly yeah. groundbreaking or anything. The Aviator was kind of more Hollywood, literally, but um, yeah, that, that felt I, I more kind of playing to a mainstream others. audience. What would you say is his last huge groundbreaking? you know, really universally acclaimed film. Because to be honest, I, I'm just looking at his CV now. I, I I, think you've got to go back to The Departed for the last one that really hit those levels. I don't know. Was The Wolf of Wall Street, how was that taken in general? Um, it's, very, it's really well regarded, I think. Very well. People liked it a lot, but I, I think it's a lot more hit and miss, that one. Like The Irishman, it depends who you're talking to. Some people call it a masterpiece, but there's a lot more criticism of it you know then that's the thing with most of his films like shutter island and hugo uh i'm sure silence if you can actually find someone who's seen it they're all films that have their their champions who will go to bat for them who you know hold them up as absolute masterpieces but overall i think most of those films are just kind of like yeah it's a it's a well-regarded martin scorsese film Whereas I think The Departed and, you know, Goodfellas and so on transcend that. You know, they're films that my mum would watch, yeah. if you know what yeah. I mean. It's that level of mainstream. But I think if you were going to say what is Scorsese, you would say, you would go, what is his career? You'd say Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Kiss, uh, Goodfellas. Goodfellas, yeah, I'd say Goodfellas first Casino of all. Casino feels like sort of Goodfellas' cousin, really. Goodfellas is the defining Martin Scorsese film, I think, quite quite mm. uh, massively. And yeah, Casino is very much a, a sort of spiritual sequel to that film. It doesn't really have any way, anywhere close to the same cultural significance. Yeah, and then I think you know he's he's been he's been nominated best director Oscar nine times. He's won it once. He won for The Departed, which is not his best film. Yeah. And but I I bring that up because I think when I was watching Taxi Driver, I just watched it today uh, to refresh my memory. 
the one thing that really I want to see more of is the director. Like I watched that and I've got things that, you know, we'll, we'll talk about. The one thing that jumps out at me is that this is a director who's trying to do something um, mm. and is doing something and not just showing a story. They're playing with the subtext. They're playing with imagery. They're playing with camera movement. And, and that yeah. is good directing. Oh, massively, massively. Yeah. Yeah. And of course that's what is not rewarded <laughs> uh, because uh, he wasn't nominated for Taxi Driver, even though it was nominated for best picture and best actor and actress, that supporting actress, I suppose. 76 was a, a weird year at the Oscars, though, wasn't it? Is that Rocky that year? Am I, or is that the previous year? Was... Rocky, yeah. Rocky's 76. Um... Well, well it, was, it was the 77 Oscars for the films of 76. I'm just looking up what actually was... Uh, yeah, that was the year of Rocky. So Rocky won, didn't it? That's the best picture Yeah, winner. best picture, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, uh, you know, uh, not to... Well... Spoiler alert, it is to give something away. Um, I, I'd say Taxi Driver is a much better film than Rocky, personally, on uh, pretty much all, every single element of the film is better, if you ask me. And I say that as someone who likes Rocky a lot. I would probably say it is a better film on most aspects, other than, say, just uh, entertainment, it watch watchability. Well, I, I, I disagree with you there, but I think what you're getting at is that Rocky has a kind of mainstream feel-good yeah. uh, appeal. You know, it, it, it's like giving the Oscar to Green Book over Roma. <laughs> you know, it's like one may yeah. arguably have more artistic value than the other, but it's um, being a crowd-pleaser my argument points. here for Taxi Driver is that it's a great piece of art, but not necessarily all that. It's a good film, but um, uh, my I have I don't walk away from this feeling like I've had a good experience. I think that's basically what it is, and I don't really? think you're necessarily supposed to. I think I, it's I find supposed that to be quite interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> oh yeah, it's not it's not a pleasant experience in that sense, but. You know, in in terms of just putting a film on just to enjoy it as a pure piece of entertainment, I I get that out of Taxi Driver. I I find really? I I was really struck by it last night how breakneck I found the pacing because it's it's you know it's nearly two hours long. It's not a short film, and and my memory of it is it's very talky. And I thought, okay, is this going to hold up? And then. It felt like ten minutes after I put it on, he started shooting people, and I was like, "Oh bloody hell!" I forgot he, you know, he shoots someone this early on, and we have all this stuff before he gets to the big massacre at the end. And then he went upstairs, and I was like, "Oh no, this is it! This is the end of the film." Okay, uh, it's right, interesting because wow. I don't, I, I do, it I think flew past for me. Yeah, I think one the note I made was that it's slow. In fact, I, the a note I made is that I think this is deliberately slow paced. Um, it give, to give it a kind of mm. hypnotic quality, I think. It, it, it's not supposed to... I guess it's supposed to take you. It's supposed to mesmerise you. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's it. It works for me. It does that to me. I feel like I need to watch this film in, in a cinema, uh, in, in the darkness, oh, and sort of sit there the and take cinema, it in. Yeah. Because I don't think... It is one of those films that's made for that, and, and you don't get that when you're just sat mm. watching it on a laptop in your bedroom, and then you stop to go and make a cup of tea and all that sort of stuff. It's, yeah, yeah. It, 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 you, you can't lose yourself in the film, which is like the whole 
point of this film as far as Scorsese was concerned. Yeah, yeah. I think it's worth noting though as well, this again, uh, like This Is England that we covered a few weeks back, this is an incredibly formative film for me in terms of my film taste. It's, you know, when you first start getting into movies, certainly as a teenage boy, there's certain films that are kind of flung at you as oh well you've got to you've got to see this you've got to see this and obviously you know there's the big hitters like you know star wars citizen kane pulp fiction but then you know there's also the likes of taxi driver i'd say it's very much up there with the likes of scarface for in terms of films that first year film students will fall in love with and not necessarily understand and um (laughs) and so, yeah, I guess what I'm trying to say is this is one of the first films, like, real classic movies, serious movies, uh, movies without a genre element in it as well. Because, you know, I, I'd, I'd probably been watching the likes of American Werewolf in London and Dawn of the Dead and stuff at this point. But, like, in terms of getting into, like, quote-unquote real cinema... Yeah, it was one of the earliest films I remember sitting down to watch. And again, it for me as like a 15, 14 year old, however old I'll have been, I remember just loving it. And back then, I was still watching stuff as, as pure entertainment. I don't think I was really getting much more out of movies than what I got on a kind of superficial, ba- like, you know, a, a, a subconscious reading of it. You know, nowadays I, I watch a movie and I... I try and consciously put together my emotions about it and figure out why why is this working for me? Why is this not working for me? What what am I enjoying about this? What am I not enjoying about this? Um, so I can come away and say, oh, you know, I felt the third act was very contrived. That's why I didn't like that film. Or I, I thought this performance was mesmerizing and it carried me through uh, blah, 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 blah. With Taxi Driver, I remember just loving it uh from the first time i put it on and so i find it interesting that you seem to get you seem to be approaching it as less a piece of entertainment and more a piece of art and that's not to say it isn't a piece of art it seems to work for me as just pure entertainment and then i can that's get the art yeah. level out of it what struck me rewatching it actually because i was rewatching it thinking wow this isn't a conventional crowd pleasing movie it's weird that it is held up in in circles that might not necessarily get subtext and so on as well. But then obviously we, we now live in a post-Joker society. And I mean, we spoke about this when we covered Joker on the podcast. Yeah. It's part of what spurred me on to really want to go back and revisit this film. Because I haven't really, I probably haven't seen Taxi Driver in about 10 years at this point, honestly. Um, but... Yeah, I I was really struck because like Joker is just hey let's do Taxi Driver in in clown makeup, and again that's that's you know that was the big crowd pleasing movie of last year. That was the big populist film everyone came away loving. So I guess maybe this sort of film does just strike a nerve with men. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's get back to that. Uh, yeah. In terms of the character <laughs> okay. relatability, um, but yeah, I was just going to say 
you know, this this golden age of Hollywood, uh, this kind of movie brat age of Hollywood was really informed by European cinema. And the fact that Taxi Driver won the Palm d'Or is, is no kind of real shot, surprise there. It's because it's playing into the things that appeal to that market. And it's and it's that sort of stuff that it was feeding into Hollywood at the time. You know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest won the Oscar the year before that. Um, you've got things like uh, The Conversation, um, Coppola, early Coppola stuff, uh, American Graffiti. You know, it's like that kind of stuff. And the fact that Rocky won the Oscar, obviously Rocky doesn't quite fall into that category, but it's definitely playing on those ideas. The fact that those things had become popular meant that Rocky could get made, low budget, and also meant that it could be kind of critically lauded in a slightly different way. That's not to denigrate Rocky too much, but like I said, I think that Rocky is the kind of the the inevitable resolution of this Euro, uh, European art style with Hollywood populism. And that's fine. That's okay. Yeah, I, I just want to say, if you haven't heard our Rocky uh, two episodes, actually, we did, covering the whole franchise... Sorry if it sounds like we're shitting all over it today, because I think we were both very positive about it. Oh yeah, we loved Rocky. <laughs> yeah. The first one. Um, if you want to hear us blowing smoke up Rocky's ass, go and listen to episode 100 mm. and whatever it was. Yeah, all... Dimreturns.com. Rocky. <laughs> all I'm saying is Rocky has more commercial appeal. Oh, completely. No, I, I get what you're saying. With that. I don't think I've quite figured out how I feel about it. Like I say, I, I definitely feel I respect it more as a piece of art than enjoy it as a piece of mm. film, sort of entertainment, I guess. If you're making a, a film that's going out into cinemas and not into an art gallery, I, I suppose there's a certain expectation. But it's a little low-budget film um, that's obviously much more character-driven. And I think those expectations are not there to make a, a big mainstream hit that's going to make loads of money. It's painting a relatable character who is also does terrible things, and well, not only does terrible things, but is actually to his core quite an unpleasant person. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. he's is it's not like oh, he's a good guy at heart, and he's fallen on some, he's had a, a bad life, and kids just beat him up for no reason when he's dressed as a clown, and uh, <laughs> you know they they don't pay him and blah 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 blah. he gets fired from being a clown because he was tricked it's none of that shit it's like no he's actually he's actually not nice he's he's racist he's bigoted he's got a, a real superiority complex he's violent the you know the films about how they get that gets channeled but then there is this flip side which is that he is just incredibly likable in the way He's got this weird charisma about him. And and I think that's something I always found incredibly interesting about this film. And perhaps why it... I don't think I did understand this film when I first watched it. Not fully. Because he's presented as this, you know, this creepy loner. Mm -hmm. But, you know, with no social skills. But as a 15-year-old watching this, or however old I was, it's like... He's got no problem going up and chatting to people, and you know he go- he goes and has a chat to that secret service guy, and it's all a bit weird. But like he's he's actually quite good at interacting with people. He 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 asks a woman on a date. She finds, and this is this is the thing. You know, it's not just me misinterpreting this film. I think you're meant to find him likable and charismatic because she finds something in there. She's a bit like, right, there's something a bit off about this guy, but 
Yeah. There's a bit of mystery here. I want to know more. And she gets to know more and goes, oh shit, no, <laughs> let's back, back the fuck off, never mind. But there's obviously something about him that is very likeable and... and and I suppose that, that's, that's that's very interesting. I think that you think that, and I I, I suspect now we, we're trying to we're we're going to find where why we take have different takes on this film because I do not find him likable at all or charming. I find mm. him quite cringy, and uh, kind of I'm I'm I feel very awkward watching him. I'm like I'm just always on edge waiting for him to do something or say something. And I thought I think that's deliberate. I think that's a deliberate. Well, no, thing I I, I agree. Case. I I get what you just said, and I agree. He's he comes across weird and cringy when he's talking to people in a way where it's like he's doing what he wants to do. You know, it's not like Joker where it's like, oh, this man is coming up to me in the street and I've just got to kind of humour him. It's more like this weird guy on... But no, I think you're right. I think the fact that we we're looking at the same thing. I, th- I think it's about confidence. That's that's the point I'm trying to get at. He he's got the confidence in what he's doing. He's doing what he wants to do. It, it's like a sense of he doesn't really care how it comes across. Whereas you watch other films like this. You know, normally you watch a film about a, a, a creepy loser left behind from society, and it feels out of their hands and like it's they want to be part of society but they can't. Whereas here, it always feels a bit more like Travis is just, I don't know, detached, not interested in really conforming. Well, I think that's a testament to, to the character that, that has been created here by the writer or through Robert De Niro or who or the director, whoever. The, the whole thing comes together to create this character that can be read in different ways because of the way you're approaching yeah, it as yeah. a viewer, but also is subtle and is grey and it is... That's kind of the point because ultimately what we have is this man who's lauded as a hero when just the like a flip of a coin could have gone down as uh, an assassin, you know. Um, and, yeah. And and I think when we get we'll get we'll get to this with the ending, but it's that's raising questions about society in terms of like you kill the right person, you're a success. You kill the wrong person, and you're not. I mean, I think that's the entire point of the film, really, and it's you know. Um, talking about Paul Schrader, the the writer, I, I haven't seen much of his work. I think I slagged him off a bit unfairly in a previous episode, in fact. Um, I get the impression that he's kind of been returning to this film throughout his career and writing different versions of the same film. Because uh, I watched First Reformed a few weeks ago. I don't know if you've ever seen that. No, I'd like to. Well, I, I mean, I, I, I didn't know what to expect from it. I knew it was this this drama about Ethan Hawke playing a priest, written and directed by the guy who did Taxi Driver. But it's essentially the same film. Um, I mean, not to give too much away, but First Reformed, I'm getting into mild spoiler territory here, but this is really the the inciting incident, so it's, you know, it's the setup of the film. Basically, First Reformed is about a priest who feels shunned by society, is turning his back on society, and he, he starts to question whether or not he wants to commit a terrorist act with a bomb and blowing himself up. And, you know, it's Taxi Driver with a priest. Mm-hmm. And that that's, it, it, like, it's the exact same thing. And, and, and both films, I found it incredibly interesting watching Taxi Driver again from a, a more adult perspective, from a contemporary perspective, I mean, it is just, you know, if he were a Muslim, it would play more or less the same, but it'd be a very different film. 
but he is essentially yeah, culturally ex- in terms of the way yeah. it's, it's taken. But like it, it's essentially you know this is a sem- essentially a film about a a person being radicalized in one form or another and turned into a a terrorist. It's um it's interesting to watch it from a, a modern perspective. I think just with all of that. Well, I think what with Taxi Driver, obviously he's a Vietnam veteran. Uh, he's served in the Marines. I don't think it's saying hey, we're going to write a story about a guy with PTSD. I think it's writing a story about Vietnam veterans and kind of the kind of the lost souls that came back from Vietnam and uh, the how some of them, you know, just had nowhere yeah. to go. And I think by looking at those people and going, oh, I'm going to write someone like that, you are inevitably dealing with PTSD. Oh, if you, God, if you of course, yeah. You know what I found really jarring, actually? Last time I watched this film, Travis Bickle was very much uh, a grown-up, an adult, <laughs> Uh, he's younger than yeah. I am now, and I, I wasn't really prepared for that. Yeah. It was like, oh shit, <laughs> fucking hell. And that's another thing. I, I do feel like I'm suffering, certainly watching this film from being far removed from its place and time. I can't really. I'm, I'm not a young man watching this relating to. Oh yeah, well I remember my time in Vietnam, or even culturally being aware of that. Uh, really, in terms of you know going on around me. But I, I think, you know, that that is a catalyst for social isolation and, and detachment and, and quarter-life crisis and all these different things that, you know, they, they largely all stem from the same emotional pool. I, th- I think it's very easy. Personally, I've always found this film, and maybe this is why it works so well for me, I found it very easy to put myself in the role of Travis in in a sort of empathetic sense. You know, I don't think I'm the creep as presented. I'm certainly not someone who's prone to violence and obsession in that way, but I've always found it very easy to, to just, on a human level, connect with him. But I don't know, it sounds like maybe that's not the case for you. I definitely think watching it this time around, I'm looking back. Like you said, you, you now you're aged through it. And I'm only 35, and I'm certainly not, like, socially mature for my age either. You know what I mean? I'm not, Mm. like, married and with kids or anything like that. And I can definitely identify with being kind of a drifter and not knowing what you're doing with your life, but not in the same way. And and, and I think as a teenage boy, or, like, if you're 18, early 20s, whatever, I think you're going to find more in this because there's a greater sense of social isolation, social awkwardness. I think... I think by my age, and, and and like you'll say, he's very confident, but there's still the social awkwardness. It's not a simple, because it's not a simple character. Yeah. So it's yeah. not a simple like, dude, I can't talk to girls, and so I'm lonely. Yeah. I'm going to yeah. go into yeah. the internet and, and, and bitch about films. It's, um, it's, it's much more subtle than that. He's a functioning person. But he's just a bit off, and he and that's and I think this this reminds me much more of watching documentaries about serial killers and stuff. Oh like yeah, that. yeah, that yeah. is definitely deliberate. Oh, completely. There, there's a lot of that in there. Yeah, not necessarily even serial killers, but you know those people who just obsess about Jodie Foster and then go and shoot Ronald Reagan. Yeah. You know, well, you, I mean, <laughs> you're referencing the man <laughs> who um, was famously partly driven by taxi driver to attempt a presidential assassination yeah. himself. Uh, in a sort of half copycat crime, but um, arguably, you know, that's the way his waters were turning. Regardless, yeah, I mean, that's you have to you have to be going. That yeah, way anyway. yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting. I I read last night that Robert De Niro actually studied somewhat and based a lot of the performance on another 
man who sounds very similar, who attempted a presidential assassination uh, years prior on a different uh, presidential candidate. This was, um, I, I assume what you're talking about is the same thing I was reading about, where Paul Schrader based, the essentially, the sort of primary source for the film, um, a guy who was going to, wanted to shoot Nixon, but then the security was too tight, so he shot another guy who was like a, a Democratic candidate for like uh, for the primary. Didn't care about the policy or anything like that, he just wanted to kind of become infamous. His diaries were published, they found them and they published them, and, and that's why Taxi Driver is, you know, he's writing in his diary all the time, and uh, Paul Schrader, that was his kind of primary source in terms of like, oh, that's a good idea, that's going to make a good, interesting story. Um, So that's like the story, the true story, if he actually did go and shoot the senator and ended up putting him in a wheelchair. Uh, and then, you know, that guy spent 30 years in prison and now he's out. Are you talking about Arthur Bremer? Arthur Bremer? Yes. Yes, uh, am, yes. Yeah, I'm just reading here. Uh, he attempted to assassinate US Democratic President uh, presidential candidate George Wallace uh, specifically. Yeah. So yeah, that that's interesting because I, I was what I read is that um, De Niro listen to recordings of the man as a big part of uh, preparing for the role and getting into it. So his performance was obviously somewhat based on him. I didn't realise Paul Schrader based the script on him as well, but yeah, that, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. Well, I assume it's the same guy, yeah. But like I say, this guy wrote in his diaries, and like kind of like your classic in films, I'm a mental person writing in diaries, talking about my plans to assassinate the president. And, you know, it's, it's because he's all about like, oh, I'm going to kill the president, and then I'm going to be like totally famous, and it's going to be amazing. And then he's like, oh, I can't kill the president, it's too hard. I'll just kill this other bloke. I definitely won't be as good, but it'll be all right. <laughs> and then nobody remembers him. Well, they do now is the inspiration behind Taxi Driver. Should we should we, uh, should we? we take a break from talking about this film on a deeper uh, thematic yeah. level and touch on some of the more superficial elements, the, the sort of technical yeah. stuff? Yep. Okay, so cinematography. I think this film is really quite beautiful to look at but i don't know how much of that is just that they kind of perfectly captured a place and time that is so mm-hmm. alien to me but you know it, it, there, there's a new york in the 70s is famously a shithole but it's a shithole that's yeah. also very romanticized it's a really great setting for a film and i i can't think of a film that really takes me there and makes me feel like I'm there to the extent that Taxi Driver does, uh, does with just all the, I don't know, all the shots of just you know, driving around and you see the reflections in the mirror and it's a very innovative, I suppose, um, interesting way of shooting a film. It's put together with a really kind of... I mean, it, it, you can just, it's what you were saying earlier, you can tell this is a, a really good director calling the shots yeah everything everything is chosen that, yeah it's not yeah. just like well what will make a good shot it's like what will the shot mean what that's will the it there, there's a lot of really nice fancy shots dotted around but they're never just like oh that's a good shot it's always like well here's here's something we can read into this shot or this shot is going to convey some sense of character or you know it's all done with purpose yeah, and so so everything right down to like you know when you're seeing his just his eyes in the rearview mirror, that's saying something, you know, and and 
when you're seeing him talking directly to the camera because he's actually looking at his reflection yeah, and he's saying yeah. he's talking to me. You know, that that works, even though he's looking directly at the camera. It's It doesn't feel like he's breaking the fourth wall. Yeah. It, it just feels like he's in his own head there. And it's, let's not forget, very low budget. You know, you're going to be very limited in terms of your lighting choices and, and like you say, your equipment you've got. That's something I wanted to say is that, you know, I, I think it's got a very muted almost sepia kind of colour palette. It's lots of browns and, and greys. Yeah. It's quite a drab-looking film. But I, again, I think it's really beautiful colour palette. But I don't know how much of that is just that 1970s film stock has this kind of <laughs> dreamlike quality to it for me. Well, I think Scorsese said that he was attempting to make something dreamlike. So I, I, I don't think that's accidental mm. at all. I think there's a definite choice there. And also there's... This film just has a hazy feel of like... It's the same sensation I get of like falling asleep, having a nap in a in the back of a car. Which, you know, for me is a pleasant <laughs> experience. I like having a, a sleep in a moving vehicle but it's it's that kind of a hazy drifting in and out of reality kind of vibe it's like you say about capturing new york isn't it it's 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 uh you know a it's a, a dirty city new york in the 70s and and that that comes across on film not just in the fact that it's actually kind of they're shooting on the re- on real streets in new mm. york like mm. you say it was all low budget you're shooting where you can there was a there was a strike on at the time so the rubbish wasn't getting collected and so the streets are just dirty and the normal there was a heat wave on it was it's it's got all that in it even though it's not sort of the point of it yeah yeah it's yeah, all just yeah. there and you've got Obviously, you've got De Niro at the center of it, completely committed to his character. So he's just—it doesn't feel like an outsider in a set. Mm-hmm. It feels like he's part of it as well. I mean, the the sort of thing I kept coming back to was that I kept likening this to a poem. You know, for all the 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 straightforward narrative elements, there's there's lots more going on, and it's often. Uh, in the same way with poetry, it's it's often impenetrable and and tedious and annoying, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it's all there. And it's like, just for example, there's a moment where you know he drops his soluble aspirin in a glass of water, and then there's a sort of slow zoom to this effervescing glass of water, and it's just like, all right, come on, <laughs> just get on with it. I, right? I know what you're it's saying, like, but it doesn't really work for me because I don't like poems. It's just an unfinished song. <laughs> Put some fucking music over it and finish what you started, you lazy. <laughs> but that's it. I mean, I've never got on with poetry very well, but then there's certain things that will jump out at you and go, okay, that's great. I, I, I feel like I understand what what it's doing now. But I think this is this is what we're dealing with yeah, here in this yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. it's the artistic end of the main of the of the film spectrum, yeah, certainly the yeah, mainstream film spectrum. Yeah. And I and there's so there's moments like that where I'm just like going, oh god, like come on, this I want I want this to be like pacier and you know and and there's so much of it that feels inconsequential, like everything to do with Albert Brooks's character just feels like it doesn't need to be there, and or you know it just her friend in the office is like that's plenty, you know. I get yeah, I I guess you are right when it comes to Albert Brooks. He's like a weird little bit of comic relief dotted in there almost but mm. but I, you know I, I suppose maybe he's there just to show the the counterbalance to Travis Bickle you know Albert Brooks is playing yeah. a character yeah. who is the the cookie cutter example of what society says 
a man should be yeah. and and Travis obviously isn't that and they both have obvious shortcomings uh in their own way i think he's there to provide an interesting contrast but you're right he is perhaps the the least um consequential part of this film i i I can't really think of anything else though that i would well there's the bits where he's talking to his fellow taxi drivers yeah i i think it's all that all just feels like stretched out Mm. and it's just like i don't care and i think it's the point of that well the entire film's just a character study isn't it i think everything like that is developing his character and it is you know it's not just they're not just chatting to fill time like they are talking in ways that furthers his um worldview or or at least our understanding of his worldview mm. yeah and it, and it's not very direct um and i think that's okay but i think because the whole film in general is not very direct mm. that and perhaps it is just a matter of personal taste as well that i feel like oh, i want let's get to the point here let's focus a little bit and that's not what the film's trying to do i mean it's definitely not so it's not a failing but it's just something that frustrates me. I love that he picks up Marty in the in the back seat, and <laughs> Martin Scorsese has his cameo, just you know, complaining about his wife and and uh, black people and all sorts. Goes off on a tirade, and you know, it, it's it's on one hand, you know, you can argue it's an incredibly inconsequential scene, but on the other hand. It's one of the most important scenes in the film. It, it, you know, it, it mm-hmm. cements Travis Bickle's views on the world that you can see taking shape, and it, I think that is arguably the scene that pushes him to take violent action. Well, that's it. I think he's. What, what happens is he's he's listening to that and goes, "Oh, I'm not the only one." Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm not so mental after all. Yeah, I'd, I'd say he's a better actor than Tarantino. <laughs> like, if I, if I say he's a character, I can say whatever I want. Yeah. Oh, he's, he's having too much fun saying this stuff. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yes, that's it. That's it. <laughs> it's, it's like when... Um, remember that film I made at uni, Alan? Yeah. When the, the first AD, it was set in a, in a... It was about a stand-up comedian. So there were a load of scenes set during a kind of comedy night with a compare... And the first AD came to me one day and was like, yeah, I was just thinking, like, on the day, like, I should just play it, like, in character when I'm first ADing. Uh, for anyone listening who doesn't know, the first AD is kind of the the first assistant director. It's someone who basically is... Managing the crew. Organising. The yeah, they're, they're, they're kind of... They're the person saying, you have to be here at this time. You have to do this. They're, they're, they're like, logistics. So he was there like, yeah, yeah, I just, you know, I was just thinking like, if I do it in character and I go up on the microphone and I do some bad jokes and then, you know, I can kind of like organise everyone like as the compare, you know? And I was like, yeah, whatever, mate, like, do, do what you want. But, <laughs> but it was so blatantly like, oh, he just wants to, to dress up and be, you know, a comedian with a silly hat on. And it was like, just... <laughs> Just fucking come out and say it. Like it's fine. Like I, you know, there's <laughs> yeah. merit to what you're suggesting, but don't pretend it's because it's the best way to do your job. And then, and then he he spent ages trying to get a beanie hat because he was talking about how everyone who wears a beanie hat looks like a cunt, which is true to be honest. And I think we ultimately ended up borrowing Calvin's. <laughs> Calvin's fans may not realize because I don't think he wears them on his social media 
I don't know if he even wears them anymore in real life, but he probably it's does. It's a young man's But name, Calvin certainly <laughs> went through a beanie hat phase where he was, yeah, he loved his little beanie hat. <laughs> Uh, anyway, <laughs> back to the topic in hand. Yeah, so let's let's deal with the plot elements a little bit. We we introduce Travis Bickle as a character. He's we basically get quite a nice quick history without it feeling too exposition heavy. That he's come back from Vietnam, he served in the Marines, and now he's uh, he hasn't got a job. You know, what's, you know what's interesting is that I normally I hate narration because it you know mm-hmm. you're you're taught as a as a film student certainly you're taught that narration is is a lazy way of doing exposition and you know there's truth to that show don't tell that's what they the, the rule is films a visual medium and all that so it's weird because i love it here but i think it is it's kind of what you were saying like it, he's not he's indirect isn't he like the exposition he's, well, he's not he's, isn't yeah he, it's not like the voiceover goes well you know i started out in 1958 yeah. i got a job doing it's like it's it, God, I hate these people. Well, the beauty, the beauty of it, and the reason why it works, is because what we're getting is in his is his inner monologue. We're hearing his thoughts, basically, but he's not doing what he's doing consciously. He's not thinking, "I'm going to go from A to B, and then I'm going to reach C." He's all over the place as well. He doesn't really know why he's doing yeah. it, and it's what creates the ambiguity of the film and why it's so great. Mm-hmm. He, as a character, doesn't fully understand what he's doing or the motivations behind what he's doing. Um, and also, you also get a sense of fe- that he's writing these diaries to be found one day, and it's going to be this manifesto. But that that is it. It, it. it doesn't feel like an honest diary in the way that like Samuel Pepys or whoever was. It feels like uh, <laughs> I'm presenting my my view, what I view as my best self in these pages yeah so i think that's very revealing you you get a lot more there's a couple of moments in the narration and i'm pu- i'm gonna put this to the director to the director's benefit i assume where you know he starts and then stops and starts a sentence again. oh yeah yeah oh i love those moments. now yeah. uh, i don't know if that came about because de niro stopped and started again and they thought oh that's good i'm going to use that but basically the pressure it gives is that it's a man rehearsing his manifesto yeah, yeah kind yeah. of rehearsing this speech that he's going to give when everyone finally everyone's looking at him the press are looking at him and say why did you do this and he's finally going to be able to get his say listen up all you scumbags low lifes i <laughs> when we <laughs> i remember in primary school for an english lesson we were told to write an official notice to go up on, like, a communal board or something saying, you know, please don't litter in the park. And for whatever reason, I went away. My teacher had a talk with me saying, now the tone of voice in this is actually, it's quite aggressive. Because <laughs> I wrote, <laughs> I wrote, I, I can't remember it exactly, but I remember, like, I remember for a fact that the first two words I'm about to say were the words I used. Uh, Attention scumbags. <laughs> 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 and I, I remember my my friend who sits next to me read it and loved it so much that he he wrote like the same thing like and listen up scumbag stop dropping litter <laughs> oh god <laughs> so okay so let's get get to some plot points he he starts driving a taxi he's an insomniac uh, we never we never quite develop that aspect of it but it's just yet another thing that's creating this fractured state of mind and perhaps hinting at PTSD or something like that. Um, so yeah, what's he doing? He, he 
decides to become a taxi driver just because it's a pretty solid gig he, in the 70s. So. It means he, he sees, he sees you know, driving around New York at night, he sees the seedy underbelly, seeing the worst of the place. Hey, Alan, if, if yeah. they made this movie now, they'd have to call it Uber Driver. Yeah. And every, every so. scene would be the same, wouldn't it? But at the end, Robert De Niro would be, I'm going to give you five stars. Really squint at them. Yeah. <laughs> Any other weak comments <laughs> <tonight again? laughs> oh, if they Yeah, if they, oh, they make this film now, probably wouldn't even be able to drive anywhere. Because New York's so congested, isn't it? <laughs> Have I ever been to New York? I, I don't think... I th- <laughs> or if they made it now, he'd probably run over uh, Jimmy Kimmel. Or Conan <laughs> O'Brien or someone, wouldn't he? So he, <laughs> James Gordon he, <laughs> doing cut. Oh no, he does it in LA though, doesn't he? He doesn't. Damn it! I was I was thinking up a carpool karaoke taxi driver mashup, but uh, <laughs> oh, what a film! If it, if this film ended with Robert De Niro shooting James Corden in the face. Sorry, I, I mean we're getting massive. No, you've, there's got to be some ambiguity of he might be a bad person. <laughs> right, so. Because killing, 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 shooting someone in the face who's raping a child is one thing, but there's ambiguity to that. But James Corden, <laughs> everyone's on board. Uh, I think where James Corden's on the brain before we started filming, I just saw from about a year ago the Late Late Show team, James Corden and you know, I don't know, some writers and a producer all did one of the Reddit Ask Me Anything threads Q&A. And I, and I encourage anyone listening to this to go and look it up because you know on Reddit you, you rate up posts and or rate them down and mm-hmm. so at the top you see all the highest rated posts. I couldn't see any that actually got an answer from the team and until I set it specifically to show me their responses because the highest rated posts are just basically just loads of questions along the lines of, hi James, what's it like being such a an insufferable piece of shit? <laughs> it's remarkable. And, you know, we're doing questions followed by edit the, the team have had to go and work on the show, so that's the end of the questions, and it's like, oh, I think they might have cut <laughs> this short. <laughs> yeah, so he he focuses in on Sybil Shepherd, just a young woman who he's, who's caught his eye. Yes. Um, For no, like, for apparently purely aesthetic reasons, because he's never spoken to her. And so he watches her from afar, from a while, and in a creepy way, she notices and then he he feels confident enough to go and ask her out. And pretty much just goes in sort of the pretense of a, of a reason to be there. And then he's just like, actually, do you know what? I just want to ask you out. Yeah, she seems to respond to that in a kind of like, this is a quirky kind of guy. I'll go, I'll go for a piece of pie with him and uh, we'll see see what happens. But that's it, because I, I, I think he is an interesting guy, you know? I, I get that. Yeah, obviously what she's seeing in this scene is not what we've yeah, seen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so far and and yeah he's just he's a fairly attractive young man he's just sort of walked in with a bit of confidence and that's that's all you need isn't it he's an enigmatic character there's a lot to unpack there and and then you know she starts to unpack it yeah you definitely get the sense that she's curious about him like rather than really horny for him you know you always get the sense that she's kind of 
on edge from the get-go and ready to end the date then and there if it kind of I wish she does ultimately oh we've all we've all been there haven't we alan what taking a girl to a porn house <laughs> <laughs> what's what's the um what's the quickest date you've ever had what from beginning to failure <laughs> well I, I mean if you sealed the deal sooner than the failure oh, right. then that counts i guess i mean like an actual date i don't think i've ever had a bad date in the sense of like you turn up and then just like oh god um, this is not for me i need to get out as soon as possible it's always been i've always been able to have a decent conversation out of it, even if nothing came of it it's always been like yeah it's fine spend a couple of hours having a drink and a chat that's fine well i, I i've had that yeah I, i've never had like an abrupt ew and then they walk away sort of thing but i you know I, i've been on most dates I've had have been pretty successful from my point of view. Even if I'm not really into it, they come away like falling in love with me. It's just something that happens. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the interesting thing about this whole thing is that you know he he does okay over coffee and pie, and, and she goes for a second date, mm, um, mm. a little bit more kind of oh let's go out in the evening time, and he takes her to a porno theater already like obviously we don't have much frame of reference for porno theaters it's just <laughs> not a thing that exists anymore what i noticed we see him going there earlier at a different in an earlier scene and he buys popcorn and like sweets and a drink and i like that was really surprising i like i wouldn't have thought porno theaters you just sat there with popcorn and stuff well it's the 70s especially it's a d- you, you, you look you pay your money you're there for an hour and a half or whatever so you're gonna want to crank at least three out to make it worth your while like <laughs> you're either going oh, in i haven't got that kind of energy you, you're gonna you're gonna go in sort yourself out and immediately leave, which is what I bet a lot of people did, most people. Yeah. Or you're actually going to watch the movie. In which case you're pacing yourself to the last Yeah, minutes. which is what I bet a lot of people did as well, because they're paying probably decent money to go and see this film, and there's a time expense as well of just going out of the house to a porno theatre to watch it. So I bet you a lot of people were like, right, I'm in for the long haul here, I'm, I'm going to watch... Sort, sort myself out right at the start and then have one at the end and so I bet you would arm yourself with like milk duds and popcorn oh, and a drink to keep yourself going <laughs> that would put me off though if I was trying to crack one out and there's some blokes sat next yeah, to me ru- popcorn, with a popcorn rustling could settle in <laughs> and did you know did you know Sol the, you know he at the porno theatre he, he tries to sort of flirt with the uh, woman at the desk yeah and she's just having none of it. Well, that's because that she gets that all the time. That's why. That's it. Because he, even in that scene, he's not like he's really kind of weird and creepy. He's just making a move and then doesn't quite get the hint that it's not happening, mate. And he, he tries again, and she has to sort of like really reject him properly. But that was Robert De Niro's first wife. Oh, really? Really? <laughs> I think I don't think they were married at the time, but it was like his on again, off again girlfriend at the oh, time. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Diane Abbott, she's called. Yeah, yeah, top. Not not the MP. Top build. <laughs> yeah, alphabetically. Spelt incorrectly as well. They missed the second T off her, her oh, surname. Right. Which is weird, because if I was going to misspell Diane Abbott, it would be that fucking car crash of a Diane. D-I-A-H-N-N-E. What the fuck is that? Diane. A little bit trivia for you. Then. Yeah, I, I, had no, I had no idea. We've established the porno theatre. Although the one he takes her to is a bigger, classier one. But the the interesting thing about that scene is that you never get a sense that he's trying to shock her or, or test her or something like that. It feels like he really doesn't get it. 
that that's a weird thing to do. It is by far and away, I think, the the weirdest behaviour exhibited from him. The yeah. most clear-cut, oh, this guy's a bit not right, that you get in the entire film. Because even his violent tendencies, it's like, okay, I, I understand the logic behind this. Even if it's just, I want attention, I can see how this might equate to attention. But... You know, it, it's difficult to know what he was trying to achieve, basically, is, is I suppose, what... <laughs> I, I, you know, and I, and I guess what it comes down to is this is something he does himself mm-hmm. as a nice way to spend time. So he just thinks that that's what everyone does, right? Because you're right, it's not like he yeah. takes her there to test the... I think if porno theatres were still knocking around, I might... Have had a date or two at one, you know. I, I feel like it's, but it, it'd be a bit of a laugh, you know. I yeah, but you would definitely establish it beforehand. You would make sure they were. Up but that's it, you know. I, I I had a first date to a rope bondage class once, and uh-huh. you know that was very much. Uh, I mean, she she was going anyway, and she just sort of said like, "Well, you might as well." I had this booked in for Friday night, but whatever. And I should add, it was kind of a surprise thing. She didn't tell me what it was going to be till like, we got there, <laughs> basically. You know, that was obviously a kind of playful, ooh, I'm going to test this guy's boundaries and reactions yeah, a bit yeah, and yeah. see... And presumably, based on conversations you had, she knew that wasn't just total punt in the dark. Yeah, know? yeah, exactly. So, you know, I, I think... Based on what had come across from you. Plus, a woman doing that to a man is yeah, very different. Yeah, yeah, that is very true. <laughs> and, that is and... very true. But my, I guess what I'm saying is, I, I think... Uh, a date to a porno theatre in the right context could be, you know, she she even responds this way herself in the film. She kind of hints at, like, ooh, cheeky, as if, like, that's how she's supposed to react to it. And then he just doesn't pick up on that hint from Yeah, her. I mean, she, get, she gets in there. She doesn't get to the door and go, I'm not doing this. She's like, is it, are you sure this is what we're doing? Yeah. And, he, and he, because he reassures her, she's like, okay, well, alright. And then very quickly, kind of, no, this is exactly what I thought it was going to yeah, be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there isn't some sort of subtlety here. I'm not yeah, aware of. Yeah, it's it's a very weird scene, but um, I think it's the most difficult scene in the film to unpack, just in mm. terms of meaning. But I, I I love it. You know, I think there's a lot to read into it. And also, we this this is the rejection uh, by her that I think we're supposed to see from his point of view as a kind of last chance at normality. Mm. I suppose, or last chance at real life, and and it, because he's now he's there's nothing holding him, he can just descend into his whatever he wants, whatever kind of weird world he's in his head. Yeah, because it well, it's shortly after this that he goes and buys a a weapons arsenal. Yeah, and oh god, I mean, I love that scene. You know, this is the thing. I just, I just find every scene in this film so inherently just watchable just mesmerizingly entertaining and it's it, it, again it's very similar i keep going on about this is england but it's very similar to what i got out of that and it's very similar to what i got out of the likes of breaking bad just effortlessly entertaining stuff and it's just people talking but i just find them so well directed and and well performed i suppose because mm. that scene with the gun salesman i love it to be honest in hindsight you probably could get away with cutting that scene. I don't think it would make much difference to the overall narrative. But then there's so many subtle bits of characterization in there where, well, firstly, he's completely unhinged. He, he goes to buy one gun, he buys all the guns, 
completely overdoing <laughs> it unnecessary. But secondly, the guy then goes, oh, this guy wants to buy shit. Maybe he wants to buy some drugs. And, and Travis responds with just complete disdain. Like, no, you know, drugs are for lowlife scumbags. Like, he's obviously not interested in that at all. So he, you get all this weird moral code that he is projecting upon the world. It, it's... Hmm. Do you... What... How do you think you'd react if Joe Gilgan took you to a porno theatre on a f- first date? I, again, I think I'd be like, are you joking? Kind of like she was. And if he was like, nah, come on, it'll, it'll be Sterling, mate, Sterling. I'd be like, I'd be like, all right. <laughs> and I think if I got in there and it was just like he took his trousers down and started wanking himself off, I think I would be quite upset because it would be like a, a <laughs> betrayal. But but I don't know, I, can't, I don't think he'd ever frame it that way. I think it would... It would be it'd be cheeky fun, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's it. It would just be cheeky, cheeky, cheerful, chappy having a having a laugh. It'd be like what a porn theatre. <laughs> this is a this is, but then it's hard it, again. It's also very difficult to to view this objectively, isn't it? Because to us, porn theatre, there's a novelty there. We don't have these mm. things anymore. It, it, it's not a day to day thing. I suppose the modern day equivalent would be if Travis Bickle invited her in for coffee and she came in. And then he loaded up Pornhub on his laptop and sat yeah. down to watch some of that with her, as if he or like put on a you know put it up on the TV, just in the background. Yeah, yeah, that's what I mean. That that's kind of the modern equivalent, isn't it? And you know, I think it would play much the same way that that she'd sort of be Im- immediately like, "Are you joking?" And then he'd be like, "No," and she'd be like, "Uh," and then she'd probably take a second for to. <laughs> sink in and that actually no she'd probably just immediately be like what the fuck and leave but yeah of course the, the slight difference there is when they're in this porno theater they are essentially still in public place so she probably doesn't feel as kind of afraid in that sense she feels she can still walk away which she does yeah so then we start to see travis descend further into his own kind of isolation and uh, it feels like that's an important thing that there's a lot of ideas of him being alone and isolated mm. and how much of that is deliberate from his part and he doesn't socialize at all beyond picking up people as part of his work and that's the crucial thing about it being a taxi driver because you know the taxi driver is present but not present because you talk in a taxi you just have a conversation between yourselves and there's someone else there but they're just nothing you know you're not you're not you're not paying attention to them and i think quite interestingly really because i i think the the impulse making a film about a taxi driver would be you write a whole load of scenes where the character has a great chat because everyone's been in a taxi and they've had like a really enthusiastic taxi driver or you've been there with some i i'm not someone to spark up a big conversation but i've been in taxis with people who then spark up a massive conversation with a taxi driver or i've kind of politely gone along with a massive conversation with a taxi driver and just you know I can't imagine anything I want less yeah, than a yeah. conversation with a taxi driver. Oh god, I, I, I've I've had full on. <laughs> I've had a, a taxi driver trying to convert me to Allah's beautiful love. He, he he somehow I think he somehow picked up that like I wasn't a, a Muslim hating racist, and then very quickly that transitioned <laughs> into trying to convert me. And it was like okay, I give him four stars instead of five. <laughs> Can never bring myself to yeah. go too low on on the old Uber. There, it's uh, it's a livelihood, isn't it? You're fucking about with. Yeah, yeah they've got to do something wrong, haven't they? If you wanna... Yeah, they've got to like drive me to a porno theater when I'm <laughs> trying to go somewhere else. I think there's an impulse, or there would be an impulse, to write that you know 
always having all this banter and connections with these people, and you don't really get any of that. And maybe that's well, that's the whole, that's the whole point is that he's not connecting with people. There's a scene with Marty, but it's very much Martin Scorsese talking at him. There's yeah, the one there's scene, not much interaction. the one scene he kind of does have a back and forth is the uh, political candidate gets in his taxi and he. Yeah has a chat but even that's very insincere and and yeah that's a that's an interesting scene because uh travis it talks to the senator senator palpatine i think he's called um he talks to the senator palantine and yeah and the way he speaks and the way he even the way he's smiling something it's like oh we've never seen him like that before that's weird it feels false it feels like everything he's saying is a lie and then of course that's mirrored by the politician who gives a total politician's response is completely yeah. insincere I, there's a lot of ways to read it i certainly don't have a solid grip on this scene as to what how you're meant to take it like i do with much of this film but i you know, I, I think the idea there is that he's kind of, in the moment, he kind of does believe it, is kind of how I see it. And he does have the, the campaign stickers and stuff in his yeah, flat, it, it, but no one else is going to go, he's not going not gonna to see them, it's not performative. It feels like he's very, for a brief moment, he does love this guy and his policies without really understanding politics, because this girl he was into is involved with this guy's work and he's seen this guy around and it's... yeah that's it. it what if it feels like it feels like not someone who's going oh hey i really like what you thought you're standing for and i really hate it feels like someone who's heard people say that and knows that's what you're supposed to say exactly yeah and, exactly. and, and can perform it but it doesn't really be- not that he believes it but he just doesn't understand it in any real sense mm. he's performing social normities yeah and I'm not sure what it adds to his character particularly. But... Well, I, if nothing else, I think it does show that he's very capable of switching on a charm and, and being part of society on a kind of, you know, it, it reinforces the idea that it's a, a choice that he's making to kind of remove himself from socialization and rather than it being thrust upon him. And yeah, I think it also reinforces more than anything the notion that he doesn't follow politics. Uh, you might read it when he when he later attempts to assassinate the guy. You might read it as being politically motivated, but I think this scene uh, really helps to push the idea that oh no, he doesn't understand. Mm. This isn't about politics. It's about something else. It's about fame and recognition. Yeah, and I think the reason he chose this guy is because of Sybil Shepherd. But I don't think. I don't think there's any kind of like, oh, she's rejected me, I'm going to kill her boss, or, or anything like that. It feels just like... Oh, no, it's it's just familiarity. Oh, that's in my frame of reference, so yeah, that'll do. But 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 that people are like that. People are like that, you know? I... And there might be some sense of this'll make her look at me, this'll make her pay yeah, attention yeah, yeah. to me kind of thing, but even that's played down. But then, of course, we have the secondary element of the story, uh, which is a, a girl uh, played by Jodie Foster whose name is Iris mm. and she is a, a a child prostitute who's just a streetwalker in New York basically Jodie Foster was 12 when they shot this I believe she's been trafficked I guess is that the word just um by these pimps we're introduced to her I should have in a scene where she shows great distress and she's trying to flee from these people I think that's important to know it's not like he just spots her on the street one day 
she's literally walking around on the streets as a prostitute. Like people will see her every day and and are aware, and she looks young. And I know these things still happen, but it is. I don't know if that sort of stuff does happen as easily in, in, in the fucking streets of New York, you know what I mean? So you're right, actually, yeah. I I, I was going to say, you know, it was... I think it was very controversial at the time of this film's release that a 12-year-old had been cast in that role and was involved in such a movie and all that sort of thing. But you're right, the fact that we're supposed to buy that she walks around in broad daylight and the police and protective services don't come in and, and put a stop to it is quite... Yeah, that that, that is different i don't think that would play today that seems to be an accepted norm of the of the film anyway to be honest it seems more like the controversy was around her being present in the violent shootout at the end rather than her playing a, a prostitute so that's probably says a lot about um the time yeah hmm. i mean god you know lest we forget when was uh when was nambler a thing people openly i think in the 70s wasn't it people used to get away with openly campaigning for the legalization of sex with minors. And so, I mean, it, yeah, it was a different time because, you know, people, if people come out publicly as, as being pedophiles now, they'll, they'll be chased out of society, you know, they, they'll get bricks through their windows and things. Yeah. And there's no sense in this film that this 12 year old prostitute is being, worked to a kind of niche market of pedophiles mm. she's just a prostitute it's just a, wo- a woman who to to fuck that and and it's very dehumanizing that sense but her age is not really that relevant it, the fact that she's an innocent in that sense is obviously lesser than it is would be now and and i i suppose there's also an element that if if she were an adult the audience might view it read it as is he infatuated with this woman and that's why he's going yeah. in to save her which is not what this is it, it's very much a, an attempt to righteousness you know uh correcting mm. a wrong that he sees which is absolutely a wrong he's looking to go out and and cause trouble essentially you know it, the reasons that lead him there are perhaps questionable yeah, we, we have a scene before the big shootout. We have a scene where he kills someone for the first time that we, you know, see. Certainly the first yeah. certainly the first time outside of wartime military capacity. Yeah. But re- the really interesting about this scene is basically it's a he's in a grocery store, someone holds it up and he shoots the, the bad guy. Having just bought his arsenal of weapons and I think at this point yeah. he's been playing around with them and in his flat and doing the the iconic are you talking yeah. to me line and everything because it's such an important moment it's the moment where he he crosses the line yeah yeah and does it in such a way that is validated vindicated yeah. by the situation and kind of justifies it like oh yeah you can kill a bad guy and then there's no consequences or the, you know what little consequences there were were like the guy going oh yeah you did well don't worry i'll take care of this mm. but also it goes to well, not just that. It, all of that, and then that shopkeeper proceeds to beating the shit out of the guy and spouting. Yeah, it, it, it really demonstrates the cheapness of life, I guess. Spouting racial slurs at him, which mm. further, much like Martin Scorsese's character, further expresses the idea that other people feel the same way as he does, um, yeah. which I think is important as well. 
Oh, interest. Just just on that note, um, the the uh, the the pimp cat Harvey Cattell and and all the guys he kills at the end were originally written as black guys and it was Scorsese who decided to change that and and I think for the right decision he didn't want to make it too much about race because otherwise it focuses it where it's supposed to be not focused yeah if the film had ended with Travis going in and gunning down a load of black people then suddenly you've got a very different film on your hands and Hmm. it might ultimately be making the same points but it's just it, it, it it's different territory you're getting into, you know, Resident Evil 5, Alan, I don't know if you're aware of the game, is an incredibly <laughs> incredibly controversial entry in the series because uh, Resident Evil 4 was set in a generic fictional European uh, town, which has been taken over by this zombie parasite, and you go in and you gun down wave after wave of european villagers but the important thing there is they are white so it's okay even though they're Mm -hmm. clearly impoverished but then resident evil 5 uh was set in africa um (laughs) i imagine in a fictionalized country although it might have been a specific one i don't remember uh which means that all of a sudden you are gunning down wave after wave of infected black villagers this was a huge controversy in america because that country is so racially charged. Mm-hmm. It's a Japanese game. The developers were just like, wait, what? What? Sorry? Like, why is this an issue? We, you know, we, because they just don't have that cultural yeah. white black divide. It's set in an area where everyone's black, so all the characters are black. Yeah, and I think even in the UK, you know, I, I played the game and it didn't bother me at all. And, you know, I say this with a certain degree of white privilege, obviously, but, you know, you, you one of the characters, uh, one of the heroes on the journey is black as well, because she's local. But, you know, I've heard Americans talk about it, and it usually comes down to just, you are playing with some very potent imagery there that you mm. do not want to touch unless you're saying something important yeah. about it. It's like you don't just passively make a 9-11 joke offhand you, you, like if you're gonna do it fine but Commit to it. yeah you, like you have to <laughs> there has to be reason and purpose and so I think Scorsese just very wisely saw that because y- you would read the film very differently um, it's easier to understand how Travis can be hailed as a hero because you can kind of buy into it yourself on some level because he has liberated this exploited child and freed her and and done a good thing from a certain perspective. But if they're black and, you know, he is set up, certainly implicitly as a racist uh, throughout the film, then suddenly you've got this racially charged attack on a load of black people and it's hard to take his side with that. And, you know, if he was still hailed as a hero, maybe the film would be even more cynically sardonic at the end maybe to be honest the message would work more but i think it's important that we can kind of empathize with travis from start to finish and it's just at the end it is like okay you can kind of see he's done a good thing but he's arrived at it for the wrong reasons which i think is more Mm -hmm. interesting isn't it it's it's but yeah it's very interesting and i think you're right if nothing else i just think it'll be a very distracting aspects of the film that Scorsese removed because he didn't want to confuse the points being made. Yeah. 
we haven't really touched on the ending there, other than to say the original intent for it. But yeah, he does go in and shoot up all the pimps um, looking after Iris. And you know, and importantly, he does that because his attempt to kill the senator fails. Oh yeah, we've missed that out. Yeah, he he makes a very haphazard attempt to kill the senator to assassinate him in public during one of his rallies and he is mm-hmm. spotted as a guy with a gun by a secret service guy and just runs pretty away. much immediately runs away and it's all so very... so so early that he he hasn't got close enough that he can't get away yeah so he runs away yeah and then and then it's just like his plan b because he was the plan seems to be to rescue Iris by sending her enough money to get away. Again, like what I was saying about this being based on a real guy who wanted to kill the president and couldn't, so he just killed someone who was a bit less famous. Uh, similar sort of thing, uh, concept to that, in which this kind of this grand plan has failed. But in this case, in this fictional case, his backup plan ends up having. Uh, remarkably positive consequences for him in terms of how he is perceived, uh, I guess. Um, He's hailed as a hero, not only by the media and the general public, but Iris's parents and family, uh, you know, view him as as the man who saved their daughter, and arguably that's right, you know? You can argue that it's not the you know violence isn't justified or whatever, but it, it he's ultimately saved a child from a horrible life. But he's kind of arrived at that point by accident, and so the film's point really, or the the satire of it is you know the comment on our nature with um, the media and and violence and things like that, and a satire of how like you say how how much of a flip of a coin it was, you know, whether he did something and was lauded for it or did the exact same thing but with a couple of tweaks and it was a, a horrible atrocity. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think importantly and certainly in line with what Paul Schrader and Martin Scorsese have said, you know, Travis is a ticking time bomb and mm-hmm. he's just going to go and do something else in a few months time and you know next time he won't be hailed as a hero next time he'll get gunned down and that'll be the end of it you know and i i think it's interesting because i i don't know if you um are aware but robert de niro has expressed at at points in his life a, a desire to do a sequel to this film and to revisit travis bickle in old age Quite rightly, I think Paul Schrader's always shot it down and said there is no Travis Bickle in old age. You know, he's he's mm. dead. He he got himself killed like two months after the film finished. It, yeah. It's and the thing is, he wouldn't he wouldn't have some triumphant kind of de- like some other big moment where he did actually die. It would just be like shouting at the wrong person in a bar who then just smack you in the face and then kick your head in and in yeah. you die. Yeah, or he's like, oh, I'm gonna go and get another pimp and then a pimp shoots him. Yeah, that's that. exactly. Yeah. And whereas this this end scene, this shootout scene, is very stylized yeah. to the point oh, where it's it is like how much of this is his perception of it. Well, exactly. That this is the the famous fan theory, one of the most infamous fan theories of how to read a movie and in a different way and get a whole new secret meaning out of it. Um, the theory is, guys, that Travis dies at the end of the film. I think the point where he runs into 
save Iris. He's, so everything that happens from that point onwards is just he, either his dying thoughts or him in heaven or however you want to interpret that. And and let's not let's not uh, forget that at one point he puts the gun to his own head and tries to kill himself. There's no bullets yes, left. Yes. There is no intention of him to get out of this alive. And by that point, he's already been shot a couple of times. He's bleeding all over. The yeah, place. and and he he sits down. And then he slumps onto a settee, injured. and that would be the moment where he's just fading into death, and perhaps yeah. his last thoughts are of how he's going to be represented yeah. as a hero. I think that is generally the point you're meant to think. Oh, he's dead now. And then we fade up into this bright, colourful, hey, everything's happy and you're a hero. And it's like, suddenly everything's really rosy and, and good mm. and the world's great. Um, it's I, I can see how you can read it that way, but I, I've never thought the film was intended that way. And uh, I mean, Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro, Paul Schrader are all on record saying it's not their intention. It's not how they made it. I don't think it needs to be because... The way we have it, that he's hails a hero, is a comment on society in general. Uh, and That gives the film purpose. O- yeah, otherwise the film has no point to it. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the one other element we've not touched on is the music. I, I think Taxi Driver has quite a famous theme tune. Uh, certainly not up there with Star Wars, but it's still pretty well known. I, I think it's a really beautiful film score, really wonderful music composed. Uh, it's mostly all that main theme done in different ways, but it, it really adds to the whole dreamlike sort of... Yeah, just wanted to say the music's good. Yeah, I mean, the music has a pretty massive effect on the feel of the film. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's again, quite hypnotic. It's these jazzy kind of, but... Yeah, and it's quite overbearing in places. But again, I think that's by design. It kind of forces you in, like, to transition from one scene into another in this kind of really nice way. Uh, but yeah, mm. other, other things that we've not spoken about, the acting... Um, this is a you know a, a famous all-time great performance. I think if if you were to do a list of the all-time greats, people would go, oh well, Robert De Niro, he's like the actor, and this is probably the performance mm. he's best known for. And you know, it's not if I was doing like a top ten list of my favorite performances of all time, it wouldn't be on it. But it is a really great bit of acting. You know, I, I think Robert De Niro is a truly, truly, truly fantastic actor. And this is him at his peak, you know. It, it's hard to take issue with anything he's doing here. Yeah, it's it's definitely he brings that grey area to it, which I think it needs. Mm. Like he's not playing the, he's not just playing the surface. He's playing everything underneath. But then that you also get all these stories that you know he went and worked as a taxi driver in New York for a month, and you just think, come on, mate, <laughs> take a day off. Mm. It's, it's like. Uh, it it just feels like it, it feels like there's obviously a process there that's working for him. Just refine it down to the bits that are working. Figure it out because there's a lot of slack here that you don't need. I think because I don't think working as a taxi driver is the important thing here. Like go go and fight in Vietnam and 
do that. <laughs> see, see how but yeah, well, to be fair, I think he has. This is very early in his career, and you know, I, I think he has refined his craft a bit. To be honest, he doesn't seem to get as silly into it in that level. He, he still, yeah. I think, last time he did something like this, he was he did a couple of stand-up comedy nights because he was he was preparing for a role this is a few years ago he was preparing for some role as a comedian or something but to be fair that having that experience on a stage probably is worthwhile that does feel like a valid worthwhile yeah, experience yeah exactly I, I'm, I'm not even saying like go and work as a taxi driver for two shifts just to sort of see how yeah. people treat a taxi driver see if they talk to you see if they but yeah, go and do it for a month. It's just not necessary, is it? <laughs> yeah, New York's expensive place to live. I mean, maybe maybe that Vito Corleone money wasn't <laughs> stretching far enough, and he, he needed to do something to keep the lights on while he was filming. But no, yeah, I, I, and you know, he he is the standout performance. But I think the acting's good on the whole. You got Harvey Keitel. Looks like Tommy Wiseau <laughs> <laughs> doing. Doing a kind of, yeah, I don't know, I'm not convinced by him as a pimp, really. I think it needs to be, but then again, maybe it's just the idea is, I my idea of what a 70s pimp is going to be mm. is, like, more cartoonish, I suppose. Yeah. I think it was, guess when it comes down to it, it probably wouldn't be that bad. Yeah. Who else have we got? You know, Sybil Shepherd apparently wasn't didn't they clashed with Scorsese and oh really did she De Niro and all that yeah she was just a bit shit basically from what I could tell yeah. <laughs> they they felt and Scorsese was just like literally giving her line reads to to get something out of her because he couldn't direct yeah, her. well I think she and she was she turns in a reasonable enough performance in the film so you know they mm. they they got it out of her uh, Jodie Foster yeah. Not like she has much to do in terms of weighty acting, but she's dealing with some pretty heavy subject matter just intrinsically. She she's certainly yeah, holds Jodie her Yeah, Jodie Foster own. always Jodie Foster always seems to have had the maturity. Obviously, she was a child actor for a long time. She had she always had that maturity beyond her years, and that's mm. what comes through in this character. And it needs to be there if you're going to have that character as a twelve year old. You know, she needs to be a streetwise twelve year old. You know, she needs yeah. to be a who else we got? Peter Boyle. As a fellow cabbie, yeah, just a dependable guy, good, enjoyable, and Albert Brooks. I think the youngest I've ever seen Albert Brooks, <laughs> oh, yeah. and and therefore kind of the least Albert Brooksy Albert Brooks I've ever seen as well. I love Albert Brooks, but I understand he he was they he was uh, they. They were happy for him to improv that and, and kind of develop the character much more than it was on the page. That's what you do with Albert Brooks, isn't it? You just mm. get him in and let him make shit up and fit that into... I mean, that that's what he does on The Simpsons, for fuck's sake, which is, you know, one of the most tightly written half hours you'll find. And if they're willing to just let Albert Brooks riff <laughs> whatever the fuck, <laughs> then... Yeah. So yeah, all points covered, all bases covered. There is it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah, we've uh, we've. Uh... If you've listened to our our live episode from a few weeks back, or indeed if you watched it broadcast or watched the video that we've put up since, you may have been wondering what the film poster that I had in the background was that I pointed out at one point. Um, I mean, if you've watched the video, you could probably see in spite of the glaring light that it was Taxi Driver, but for those of you who are just listening to the show, this is the reveal, it was Taxi Driver! Um, <laughs> and the fact that I have a framed poster of it in my home probably indicates that I, I am a big 
fan of this film, uh, so I give it a 10 out of 10. Yeah, I I think, you know, as I've said, I, I definitely appreciate this more on an artistic level than a kind of what I would say is just a simple film level. Not that that's a bad thing necessarily, but I mean, I've sung its, I've sung its praises and, you know, the fact that I haven't been able to dwell on the negatives should give you some indication of that they're not strong but there's definitely i think it's some of somewhat a matter of taste as well the this film yeah all, all the things that i don't particularly like about this film are there deliberately mm. it's not a failing it's just that i'm not a fan of kind of that unfocused nature of that mm. um oh it, well that depends on the context i suppose but it just feels like I, I want I want this to be a little bit tighter and, and, and clearer, I suppose, which is not what it's doing. But anyway, the point is, I gave it an eight. Mm. You know, you can't deny the filmmaking on, on show here. Well, I think I think that sets this in our top ten of all time until the next live episode where Calvin gives it a five <laughs> out of ten and <laughs> tanks the whole thing. Uh, yeah, that makes it our ninth highest film in our top ten. So, yeah, that's all right. I mentioned before that they've spoken about doing a sequel. How do you feel about that? Uh, Bad idea. Bad idea, isn't it? (laughs) It just doesn't need it. Yeah, well, well, De Niro has expressed it on several occasions, just the idea of doing a straight-up sequel in in later life. But I I remember back in um, 2015, I believe it was, they announced that they had given the green light, they were officially moving ahead with a bizarre remake of Taxi Driver from Martin Scorsese, Robert De Niro, and I think it was Lars von Trier. Uh, and they mm-hmm. they had they had all teamed up to if I remember correctly, the brief they'd given themselves was they were gonna remake Taxi Driver, but they were gonna find four directors, so presumably Lars von Trier, Martin Scorsese, and two other people to produce I, I don't know. I don't know if they were going to do truncated remakes, four of them, or like a quarter of the film each, but they were going to adhere to Dogma 95 rules, I think, with, with how they mm-hmm. made the film and just make it in this weird... So I I, I guess this was pitched and, and got some traction as more of a more of a thought experiment than like, a, ooh, that'll yeah. be a, a, a great thing to go and watch it was i i can only assume it was meant as more of a artistic project let's make this weird dogma 95 exercise oh we might as well use taxi driver because we own the rights or certainly some certainly the uh credibility to play around with it because it's our film you know i mm. think i think it's just like if um if, if they announced the remake of inception tomorrow there'd be uproar but if christopher nolan said i'm doing a fan remake of inception and i want everyone to submit 30 seconds of animation and we're going to stitch it all together to recreate the movie that's not the same thing is it it's like that's like an art project i I think that's all this taxi driver remake ever was and you know it it obviously never got made and i don't think it is ever going to get made so they probably realize there's maybe not an appetite for just them flexing their creative chop. I think the one thing I would say in terms of potential for remakes or sequels is that Taxi Driver is a quintessentially American story. It's so rooted in their culture and certainly in terms of... Yeah, and it's so rooted in a time and place, New York in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. I think if you were going to do something similar today, you could play it with a school shooter, that kind well, of Well, they, they did last year, didn't they? Um, what, with... They, they put a bit of clown makeup on him, Joker. 
Well, that's that's. I mean, I'm being I'm being glib about it, but that that is that is what they did. You know, I yeah. In terms of doing a modern take on it, yeah, yeah. I I, I like, I'm I'm being flippant, but like that is what Joker was. It it was a a rip off of Taxi Driver, arguably a modern take on it but that's you know i've brought up my complaints about joker with people is that oh it just ripped off taxi driver it's just taxi driver but not as good and a lot of people come back at me with well it's a modern update of that story for people who aren't going to watch a film from the 70s and you know i I, not that i don't know if that's quite valid and certainly not when you're going out of your way to recreate the 70s in order to give a modern spin on it but um yeah you know i I think there's an appetite for this story but joker joker is making a much more definitive point um is it and it's also yeah i would argue it's making less of a definitive point what's i mean our whole joker episode came down on we don't know what this film is trying to say didn't it well i think it's trying to talk about mental illness uh and the kind of the cultural uh the way that's dealt with culturally i'm not saying it's a successful exploration of so that, is but I think, taxi driver though isn't it I mean... well i think i just think but i think taxi driver is addressing that in a way that is not aware of mental illness in the same way do you know what i mean like it's just oh yeah it's a 1970s and you know, yeah, understanding exactly. of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But whatever's going on with Travis, it's not like he would not be found uh, insane in a court of law by any means. Like he would be considered culpable for his actions. Yeah. Whereas Joker approaches it with a 1990s understanding of mental health. Yeah. Wacky mental health. <laughs> um. But I think yeah, you could do that. I, I I think the best the best chance you've got of doing a remake is if. Like, if you told me, oh, they did an Indian remake of this, and it's kind of obviously just changing some cultural signposts, but essentially doing the same thing, I would bet a million pounds it didn't work very well. But I think that, I think if, if you're going to do something, something like that would be the best way to, to do it with, a, with a, any chance of, you know, not... Not in, because you're not standing on the toes of the original. I think that's the important thing. You're kind of in a different cultural sphere. Uh, is are you sure there isn't already a? No, I'm not sure. I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't be at all surprised if there is. And I would, like I say, I would bet that it's terrible and misses the point completely. <laughs> I think it, it is exactly the kind of film that would have had a a Bollywood knockoff at some point. I think this is it, though. I, I think I think people have been making remakes of this film, but just not. Like just ripping it off, and I think that's been going on for decades, you know, because it is quite a broad framework. I I think this film really nailed a specific genre or subgenre, and ever since then, it's just been like, right, well, this is the clown superhero take on it, and Paul Schrader's come and made a priest version of it, and you know, there's plenty of films that are, are kind of riffing on this film, so. I guess I can't see them ever doing a remake because it's too easy to just kind of go, well, it's Taxi Driver meets the X-Files or whatever. But then, you know, maybe not. Maybe give it another 10 years after Martin Scorsese's death and they will just turn around and be like, yeah, we're doing it. Yeah, I mean, this is 45 years old now, this film, nearly. Mm. Um, That's a long time. (laughs) <laughs> and and inherently, if you updated it, you know, we we've made some. Well, I've made some really weak, humorous riffs on uh, changes of the times. But ultimately, a modern taxi driver 
would have to get into things like social media and Tinder and online porn and you know the world has changed it... and also the the gun the gun violence question yeah, in america yeah. has, has changed i think in that time i think you you wouldn't be able to avoid race as a, as a factor so if if you've enjoyed this this has been one of our more po-faced film analysis kind of episodes <laughs> without us joking around and being silly <laughs> yeah we're usually a lot more uh, uh, insincere yeah, well, it, it, you know, it depends what we're covering. We actually had film analysis to do this week. Uh, yeah, because it was a good film. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Normally, we don't have any real film analysis to get into, so we just start taking the piss out of like the director's surname or. Yeah, we've just come off a real Lord of the Rings slog that we we were struggling with. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So there you go. Uh, but if you've enjoyed this, do do check out our pretty vast back catalogue of episodes at this point. Dimreturns.com, you can find everything there. Uh, subscribe. If you if you feel so inclined, we would massively, massively appreciate it if you'd give us a little cheeky rating on iTunes. Um, mm. we, we've got quite a few ratings now over on the, the UK iTunes and, you know, a fair few dotted around internationally, but yeah, that that is the the nicest thing you could do for us, short of subscribing to our Patreon, over at patreon.com forward slash dim returns, where we put up all sorts of bonus episodes and diminisodes, we call them, little mini ones. But we put a few full length episodes up there as well, and uh, this live episode I alluded to, which went out recently, we broadcast the video stream to our patrons exclusively. We we do all sorts of little mm. things on there, so go check it out. One dollar a month, and and you'll be helping out what we do if you like it. Yep, yep, yep. yep. What's next week, Alan? Bond. Ooh. So yeah, if you're sick of us being positive. Come back next week. <laughs>